0: Welcome to In Between. For the first part of this episode, we're gonna jump back in time, back to when we were still allowed to go out and everything, to the 8th of March. That was. International Women's Day and a few very interesting things happened there. It was Saturday and a friend told me that, oh, you know, there's this party for women, by women, we should really go by. It's like part of all these organizations around, like all these events around Women's Day. And so I was like, okay, I'm coming along. And once I got there, there was like the whole place, a very small place was full with women. And it was, it's it's always a nice and very interesting feeling if there are only women and while i was standing there they kept talking about oh the action is going to happen we're going to all do this and i was like ha ah, i thought it's a party <laughs> i've been i'm quite tired anyway and i i just was looking forward to have some drink a beer with my friends and talk maybe dance a little bit but then it all turned into a whole action kind of a thing which people probably have communicated before and we just didn't get the message or it was also kept quite secret anyway so the idea of the whole action was to march into Langstrasse, which is like a, a very interesting street in Zurich it used to be the red light area back then it still is partly but also most of the red light business has shifted to other places in the city It used to be very cheap, so I feel it's a place where a lot of students went for partying and drinking and where a lot of migrants also live and have opened their shops. And it has this very special charm, which is mixed of all of this. But by now, it somehow has been gentrified more and more. So like more and more fancy chain restaurants and so on are getting in there. More rich people are buying apartments there. So the whole constellation and flavor of this particular street or this particular area in the city started to change but it's still very interesting to observe and there's this one place which is usually very full of men in general it's not a place where one at night although i went partying there many many times it's not a place where i feel very comfortable as a woman at night Let's say if I'm alone, if I'm in a group, it's fine. But if I'm alone, I feel like I'm getting catcalled every now and then. It's I'd rather walk home quickly. I'd rather so it's not the most comfortable place. And there's like one little square in which it's basically the worst. And that's when people talked about this action. That's when I was like, I immediately knew which square because just the way it felt, which is also quite interesting. So the idea was to reclaim Nightlife, or to basically reclaim women's space in nightlife, or let's see, a safe space in nightlife. And the idea was to do that by, on the one hand, like having a chair, kind of a chariot with a collar, and the collar would drop the whole way, and people would walk after the chariot, and with their feet they would leave their footprints in the space, and especially in that particular street, on that particular place would really physically reclaim that space as a metaphor for the space in the nightlife which women should be reclaiming. That was the kind of thing we participated. And it felt quite interesting because I'm not exactly someone who goes to demonstrations and protests a lot. Sometimes, and I've made my experiences, but I'm definitely not a regular. whole bunch of women started walking to this particular street. Some of them carrying their chariot with the collar. There were loudspeakers. There was music. Um, it was like a feminist radio that they were playing. And they were specifically also talking about things like reclaiming space, reclaiming nightlife and so on. So we kept walking. And since it was an illegal thing, I mean, the police hasn't given any permission. But we also weren't stopped at all. And interestingly, people reacted quite positively to it people were filming it some were clapping some were dancing to the music so way more positive than i thought and also on that particular day the whole that street was pretty empty or let's say there were only men maybe because a lot of women were at the whole women protest and the whole events and not in that particular street at night but it made it even more urgent that we're gonna that we're doing this There was also a figure had been built, like a figure, uh, like a white figure, a white male figure, and uh, the idea was to burn this figure right then and there on that particular square on that International Women's Weekend, and this figure on the one hand was uh, a representing patriarchy, basically, and on the other hand, it was also making fun of a very old Swiss custom on which... uh, a big white snowman kind of a thing is getting burnt and people ride around it with their horses and it's about deciding uh, <laughs> how long the summer is going to go so it was also making fun a little bit or it reminded me a lot of that tradition but especially it was uh, supposed to represent patriarchy which is about, was about to be burnt once we got there to the square the patriarchy was burned people were dancing and screaming and there is something very special about taking space in a group of women and also the way people looked like with their masks and everything the way they looked it was quite it was quite scary but because i knew these were all women it didn't feel that scary also the kind of masses walking in a mass like this where you know no one is gonna grab your ass no one is gonna it again made you feel very safe and very different, a different feeling which I usually don't really know. And even after the whole spectacle basically was over and, and we all were to disperse as fast as possible, there were for once so many women in that particular area and I really realized that I'm not used to this at all. And it made it so much more welcoming for me, so much more, I felt so much more comfortable comfortable and i still feel that there is something so empowering in taking space i cannot even put it in words but i think after this action it really opened my eyes for how much there is a need to reclaim certain spaces in the city yeah and maybe reclaim a safe space in nightlife also then i want to come to another issue the last time i've actually talked about this was when there was very heavy rain which you're hearing in the background right now and the question is how political do i want this podcast to be or can this podcast be because in this time of corona where Political debates are there all the time, in the time before, with the whole protest around CAA in India, with all the communal violence, or also with the entry <laughs> the entry of this very episode about feminist politics, if you want to call it that, in Switzerland, already makes the case that politics are all around. And it has happened to me a couple of times before that Indian friends came to me and told me, I know you're only doing that podcast for your family and friends, but this political issue is really important and you know the public needs to know and uh, you should podcast about it and I always find myself in a dilemma like in a clinch whenever this is asked of me and I'm wondering on the one hand does my podcast really follow a structure that would allow for so much politics because it's not a format for political debate or anything and on the other hand Also, the question, or more actually the fact that I know that I don't know enough about especially Indian politics, and maybe also other politics, that I think I wouldn't feel comfortable enough sharing my opinion, even if I, of course, have opinions to a lot of issues, and especially when I'm in Switzerland, and I'm not there to experience or see certain events, and I have to rely on what friends are experiencing and telling me, and I do find these conversations and discussions about politics with friends in India very, uh, very inspiring and I I love them. A lot of my friends always seem to be like foreign foreign correspondents when they send me these voice messages. But at the same time, I do find it kind of risky to just rely on friends' descriptions and the way they see certain issues or portray them without actually knowing what kind of biases what kind of prejudice or in what way these reports are colored by these same friends because of course whatever you're listening on my podcast is always colored by (laughs) by my own biases but I think I find it way more difficult to to locate the same things with friends and I wouldn't feel comfortable to just rely on what other people tell me But at the same time, there are issues in Switzerland, or even the entree of this episode. I strongly believe that the person is political, and politics will kind of keep coming up, and therefore also this question keeps coming up: How political should I be? Do I want to be? Can I be? And uh, I just wanted to talk about this issue because it has been, yeah, in my it keeps coming up as a question in my head. Then I'll again need to talk a little bit about my topic, my reading, whatever else comes with my PhD. And I started reading a lot of literature and a lot of books, and I would like to document a little bit what that has been about, things which fascinate me, things which are problematic. And uh, yeah, so to start with, there was one book I read. It's in German and it's called something like The Freedom of Love. Couples Between Two Cultures by uh, Michael Eisman. It was one of the first books which I read and it gave me quite a nice overview or also an understanding that the phenomenon of the mixed couples had always been there. It's like really old, as old as, as, old as the sea probably. Always somehow already been there in the world in different cultures like He really writes kind of a history of mixed couples in the Roman Empire, in the Empire of Alexander the Great, in India, in Europe and everywhere. So it's it's like a whole history of this. And he writes a lot about the fear as well as the fascination and irritation that comes from the other, the foreign one, uh, which can enrich but also destroy and he kind of shows how how difference and this kind of sense of forbiddenness is kind of related. I mean, there's whole literature, genre about couples from different backgrounds who want to be together, but they can't because of a certain reason. There's this possibility or this suffering because of the impossibility and this like a whole topic which keeps coming up everywhere always. And it's a lot also about equality, being equal or not equal, and how is it decided What is equal or not and when can mixing happen? When is it allowed and when not? So that was also a very central thing in the book. Uh, Belonging, mixing... Yeah, equality, all of these topics are explored in many different facets with uh, color, religion, social standing, language, nationality, education, financial backgrounds, uh, and so on. When the history of these mixed couples came to the newer couples, it was a lot also about the fact that in a lot of the couples in our times, or I wouldn't say in our times, but a few decades earlier, The problem was not that people, the two people in the couple were too culturally different. It was because most of them had a very similar view on life, like some kind of ideological endogamy, how he calls it. Let's say both of them were academics, we had very similar values and so on. But mostly the problem was lying outside, let's say in the political framework and he really shows in the book that how world political processes and uh, relations are reflected in the intimate in the couple. How they, yeah, how there is kind of a back and forth of influencing going on there. Then another thing which became quite prominent in my research so far is the problem of methodological nationalism. So when I talk about intermarriage, the question inter what? When I talk about a couple from two nationalities bi-national couple or whatever so the problem which is here is that that the nation-state basically becomes the unrivaled form of social identity the nation-state is kind of naturalized in a way yeah that is a reductionist way of thinking basically like the problem that nation-states are anyway constructed and that it's difficult to say or f- essentialize national identity to really think that people really have a lot in common only because they grew up in the same nation especially because more and more it gets clear that for example class sometimes has more influence like people from the middle class in switzerland and india probably have more in common than people from the lower class and the middle class in in india would have so but still the problem is that as long as actually statistics are collected on the basis of nation states relatively uncritically it's for cross-cultural comparison it's difficult to do research outside of this national box like thinking outside of that the question here would be how to not naturalize nation states uncritically and reproduce them how to conceptualize the nation state beyond methodological nationalism and I think in my case, the problem would be how to talk about intercultural or binational or whatever we want to call them, couples, without reproducing the nation state as if it were something homogeneous, as if people couldn't be grouped in other ways. And with the national identity of the two people, maybe not being the most pressing yeah feature of difference, nor of their identity. So I started to explore a couple of other conceptions or how, how could I concept the The whole thing differently because I'm still like how should I frame this research and more and more I like the idea of thinking about worlds like a a person as a sum or a composition of the worlds to which he or she belongs in which he or she has lived or lives which interests this person or in which she he or she moves and a bit the idea that people actually fall in love with these compositions of worlds and that they connect through these different worlds or being in the same worlds or whatever. And I found that quite an interesting thing, because if we think of culture or belonging as a bit more open in the sense that my culture would be something, let's say my class upbringing, of course, my national identity, my regional identity, everything plays a role, but probably also the hobbies I do, because these are all places with a certain culture, or norms that have to be followed or also the religion I followed or another philosophy I follow, my job, my, these are all places where certain cultures are like being acted or being lived. So maybe one could see culture a bit like, yeah, not so much connected to the nation state, but a bit more open and conceptualize it as worlds. And yeah, I could think about how two individuals in a couple try to relate or understand the different psychological and social worlds both individuals inhabit. But these are just like very raw ideas I am throwing around and I'm pondering on, but there's nothing like fixed here yet. Then more and more, when I read more and more, I realized that I do not want to work with the concept of marriage because it's always intermarriage, marriage inter-what, cross-cultural marriage, this and that. And again, we think of these two things which are inter, which are like two, I don't know, two containers And nothing fluid, like, and very static, and that will be a problem. Moreover, so much has been written about marriage. I kind of think that there are a lot of very serious and sincere unions and connections with people from different backgrounds, which are not legalized as a marriage. Because either it's a very long process to marry between nation states, and maybe it's already interesting before people are actually married, like, to witness that process. Maybe people just don't marry anymore. They just also just live together. Like, or if I would only look at marriage, I would rule out a lot of people who could also be interesting. For example, also widows or divorcees, people who had been in these kind of unions. So basically, I'm just kind of interested in people from different backgrounds who transgress certain boundaries, certain maybe yeah, challenge moral universes for some reason. Initially, I thought I'm going to look at couples where one partner is Indian and one partner is from some foreign country. But maybe I could also look at certain, I would say transgressing couples inside of India from different religions and regions or whatever, maybe same sex couples and so on. And more and more, I think that instead of me defining what is actually here in inter, what are the two boxes? Which what, what is this? What kind of mixing is happening here? That I could take the people's perception into account more, like the people who are concerned by it: the couple, the family, the friends, the wider society. What do they think? Why are which boundaries are transgressed here? Why is this a mixed marriage and not a usual one, and so on? And uh, yeah, so I'm still really trying hard to kind of yeah, decide with whom I am want to work and why, and it's a theoretical war over here. <laughs> uh, moreover, I'm very interested in uh, social transformation also, connected to these couples, like what are the social implications of such a union? How does it contribute to social transformation? And because such unions kind of reflect the boundaries that or the separate groups within a society, but at the same time, they bear... Potential for change and I'm kind of interested in this duality. I'm also very interested in the topic complex of uh, subjectivities in a transnational context as well as identity and belonging, kind of the possibility of belonging to more than one ethnic and cultural yeah localities similar at the same time or kind of the thing that the eye seems to have the possibility to move from one position to another according to changes in time and space. And uh, a couple of texts I read also make the point that we shouldn't talk about identity as something fixed, but we should be talking about identification as a never-ending process, as something kind of fluid. Then I want to talk about another thing, because uh, a thing that has become kind of a habit, In this Corona times, a new very pleasant habit, which is uh, taking long walks in the forests around my house. And I really like it. I find it so beautiful. And sometimes it seems to me as if I've discovered a new like secret world, like kind of a bit of a fairy tale world that I didn't know it exists so close to my house. So I take these long walks and I'm really Yeah, amazed how fast you're in the middle of nowhere in the middle of trees and uh, find it somehow very yeah very relaxing and a very interesting new habit and yeah kind of a new relation that i found with the nature around my house and uh, some most of the the time i take these walks alone sometimes uh, with my sister which is also fun and uh On one of the walks a few days ago, I was thinking a little bit about the fact that it's actually also part of my PhD that I am teaching a course. And the course I'm teaching, it's kind of made for me. It's about methodology, a course in which every student has to design an individual research project and then execute it. So the, tu- the students have to decide what is my project about, which questions does it answer, where do I do it and all of that and prepare the whole research design. And within this whole research, they need to um, practice certain methods, like for example, participant observation or interviews and Yeah, I really like the course. It's so interesting. It's so interesting that actually I get to choose like certain sessions and what we're going to look at in these sessions and that I can finally teach what I think is relevant or what I feel like never someone has taught me this and I had to learn it by myself kind of and now I want to teach this to my students or I want us to have discussions about this and yeah, so far it was really interesting the preparation that I really had to ask myself again so what's important in an interview what do i want them to know or to think about what's important in participant observation how do i create a research project how do i create a research design how do i find a topic and probably the thing i have most experience with but also the opportunity to talk about things like mental health in the field which i think that haven't been addressed a lot in the six years that i've been a student and it's also interesting now to be on the other side for once and be teaching when I was a student for such a long time. And yeah, we talked about mental health in the field, like how it can get lonely, how it can get difficult, how it's difficult to switch between your field and your home, how how not a lot of anthropologists talk about this, how isolated and lonely it can, or frustrating if your project is not working, it can actually get. We talked about failure, like how... <laughs> how actually everyone is failing so much, but everyone is just always writing and talking about his or her successes and how there's such a big competition in academia and how it's important that you talk to your peers, you collaborate, you talk to each other, especially when things are not working, because you will find out that it's not working for everybody around you neither. (laughs) And everyone is struggling with something all the time. Also to talk about ethics like... uh, When do I leave the field? How do I leave the field? When do I stop being a researcher? When am I a friend? When am I a researcher? Like This whole your own personal stand which you are taking and how a lot of dilemmas can come up in the field and... In general, I really enjoyed like the questions of the students or especially when they did not agree with a certain thing and we could discuss it or when they wanted to discuss the texts or different things or share their experiences. Yeah, I really find it a very cool and inspiring task and it made me overthink so many things again and it still does because the course is still running. So yeah, I wanted to share this experience with you and I might be talking more about it in the future. So for the last part of this episode, I have something very, very special um, I want to share with you. So I think about now it's already two years ago when I was studying in Delhi, I one evening had a very interesting conversation with a friend and somehow I never forgot about this conversation. I always kind of wanted to do something with it, either academically or creatively or whatever. Like, do something with that material of that conversation in some way. And now, when all of us are being kind of locked down, I suddenly was thinking about this conversation again. And I texted that friend and asked her, like, do you remember this conversation? And she immediately did. And I asked her, could we explore this topic, like, a bit further? Or could we, like, extend it into something for the podcast? And she immediately was in and that's what we did and i'm actually very excited for this part so back then our conversation was about books and i remember how that indian friend told me that she she used to read a lot of english novels and english books in her childhood and how she sometimes felt that the surroundings in which she lived were so different from the surroundings in which these adventures these kids adventures in the books took place that she somehow felt because certain either like certain trees, forests, landscape features were not there or because certain foods or certain certain behaviors or certain places were not there in her actual life. She kind of felt that she missed out on a very important part of what it means to be a child, like what childhood is supposed to be. And I found this so interesting and uh, also started thinking about that more and more. And that's actually where our conversation started especially with this difference between uh, the books you read and as a child and the actual life world you're living in or what you're experiencing around you
1: i remember our conversation back then being about landscapes and weather and all that yes i mean till i was nine years old we used to live in the hills it was also a hill town which the British considered like when they were ruling India it was like a summer spot for them so there were a lot of houses built in the colonial style there were a lot of schools which still held the British boarding school culture so uniforms and food and stuff like that so a lot of things which were like remaining even after all these years so when you read like books based in like English boarding schools like Mallory Towers and all that could identify a lot of stuff you know with the the school culture or the vegetation around the hills and trees and all those and the kind of life that the students led also within the confines of these whatever you know natural features but then after I turned 9 we moved to the plains where everything was very different like my school uniform was different like we we didn't have like a cardigan and sweater anymore I had to wear a salwar and food is different it's really hot so you don't even wear all these like layers of clothes that somehow seem to be more romantic which somehow i some feel is more romantic even today and then comes a the disconnect so then it's like i'm not going on walks i don't see the hills from my window i i can't get like my hands on fresh plums where's all this I mean, it's still there in the books, but it's not in my life. That's when the disconnect really set in. Because till then, I mean, till then, it was something that was still accessible, but in a much, much diluted with manner, I guess.
0: Then when I thought about it more, I realized there was a similar phenomenon in my childhood. Because we used to watch a lot of these TV series from uh, Japan, these manga, anime kind of series. And for example, like Pokemon or Dragon Ball Z. And in these series there were always these the places looked so different the houses had tatami mats uh, the food looked very different for example uh, people used to eat these rice balls and I never really understand what is this and I felt like I also want to have that because my heroes from these series are doing that or are eating that like why, why is this thing or this reality so absent in my real life And it was very funny when my friends told me a very similar anecdote, uh, pointing to the same thing.
1: So when I was young, uh, basically my dad bought me all these books that he read as a kid, most of which was European. I mean, there were a few Archie's comics here and there, but then that's it. But apart from that, it was mostly Enid Blyton, Roald Dahl, and Tintin. I think uh, Enid Blyton was the one who figured the most in my preteen years. Kids go off on adventures, they go on picnics. And one thing that kept repeatedly occurring was that they go on picnics and they take baked beans with them. I hadn't had baked beans till then. And I was like, oh my God, what is this thing? This sounds so good. I mean, I really want to have it. What is this thing? And they they seem to be having it all the time. And in my mind, it was something sweet. It was something dessert-like. And then finally, when I was around 13 or so, we, I mean, my aunt, she'd Somehow, I mean, managed to get like a tin of baked beans. When I mean, I think she was coming from abroad or something like that, basically. And I was so excited. And so she got this tin for me. And then uh, my mother was like, okay, so we're going to have baked beans. And then I was like, oh, wow, baked beans. Finally, my childhood dream is coming alive. I'm going to eat this marvelous thing. And yeah, she opens the can. She heats it up. I don't know what's happening. And then she serves it. And she's like, so this is baked beans, which is just plain kidney and in sauce and i was disappointed it all just like came crumbling down it was nothing like what i had expected i think this anecdote is kind of revealing to me about how disconnected the world of the books that i read as a kid was with the actual reality that i would lived in for most of my childhood
0: then when i thought more about it i realized that actually this sense of this disconnect or this sense of a certain absence I think for me it was even more obvious in my teenage years because back then there were not so many books or magazines for youth, for teenagers from Switzerland. Most of the stuff came from Germany and I remember I used to read, I don't know, these romantic books for young girls and they were always located in bigger cities in Germany and there were these ice cream parlors, these cinemas where these girls used to have their dates. There were Like things which in my small village were totally absent. There were no ice cream parlors and no cinemas to go. And for a long time, I remember that I felt that I'm kind of missing out on something, what it means to be a teenager. That maybe that's the reason because I didn't have a boyfriend yet, because there was no ice cream parlor I could go to to have a date or something. Yeah, this kind of feeling of missing out. And I then decided to discuss this with my friend how it was for her in her teenage years.
1: When you talked about uh, you know not having ice-cream parlours and movie theatres where, where you could go on dates and so you thought you were missing out on something, I have a similar experience. There was this library near my house when I was a teen where uh, they'd have a lot of all these American teenage uh, books. One was Archie's, the other was something called... Uh, I think it was something called Sweet Valley High. <laughs> so yeah, typical American stuff. You can imagine how it would be like kids having part-time jobs, going out on dates, making out and it's like, okay, why I mean, first of all, like being in a culture where you're not allowed to have a boyfriend at that age and it's like, then you feel like you're missing out a lot on life because you don't have a boyfriend and you know, interestingly, I feel it, it worked the other way around for me. That I couldn't watch movies, I couldn't go to parks or you know go and eat ice cream and all that because I don't have a boyfriend. And I couldn't have a boyfriend because the culture says that you couldn't have one yeah so the, yeah that was a bit a bit of a disconnect too and then later on when you did have one then going to you know cafes and all that is like a mandatory part of dating then because you didn't you wanted to make up for lost time at least lost time in the sense of silly american books uh, there's this book uh, written by someone called judy bloom who writes a lot of young adult fiction so our library had like a couple of her books our school library and uh, almost all of her books are really funny i mean they're like based for kids but this is one this is couple of books that she's written for teenagers and one of them was based on a girl who has uh, sex for the first time so there's a lot of descriptions about you know how she feels emotionally the physical aspects of her first sexual relationship and all that and this was when i was 16 i think and i remember like i had issued it from my library and i was holding it in my hand and coming and there were these like seniors whom i was friendly with and they were like oh my god you're going to read this this is a very bad book you shouldn't read this but i was curious you know <laughs> but yeah i mean there was a whole and, and so back then we also had like a family friend of ours who was staying with us so she read, she read the blurb and she was like you know you should not show your mother this book so the whole time that I had that book, the few days that I had it with me, it was always in my bag. Like I read it only at school or when my mother wasn't at home, there's this whole, you know, have to keep this hidden thing. So on the one hand, you want to know what's happening in the book to know, okay, how do, you know, I mean, it's a girl of my same age, who's going through all these things in her life, but something that's still so forbidden to me and all that, you know, on the other side. There was also this notion of me breaking some rules. Back then, maybe even today, I mean, a lot of people tend to like classify girls into good girls and bad girls. So am I being a bad girl just by reading the book? So I think reading that book was perhaps one of the most adventurous things I'd done at that age.
0: Somewhere I felt that a lot of the things she said were not so absent in our culture. That's still... I think when you turn into a teenager, you read these kind of books kind of secretly. And I think all of these things are somehow a little bit there as well. I somehow find it interesting, this kind of landscapes of desire and like if the worlds you want to you wanna be in and how they accompany you and also how they change through your life. Like, for example, when I think about it later in time, I think I didn't want the reality of the books necessarily being my reality anymore. But reading became more about knowing stuff and experiences from different places in the world. For example, I was a huge fan of this Swiss author who writes about the uh, Native Americans and all of these stories and especially the heroes were always women and very young women and I really liked that. And... I somehow really enjoyed these books where you learn something about another culture okay maybe this points to the fact that I was for sure going to become a an <laughs> social anthropologist but still some at some point I didn't want that reality to match anymore with what I was experiencing here but i wanted it just for a, as an escape or as a means of to fantasize about something different or a different life and somehow i also find it interesting how one could think about one's whole biography according to the different books one has read during the course of one's life
1: yeah it's quite interesting to look at biographies through books. it's actually really true and you're also right i mean from from a point where it was okay i want to live that life to coming to certain aspects of the book i mean i mean from books you try to find similarities you No, know? you try to find a way to connect across places across generation through characters in the book beyond a certain point apart from looking at what what you have in common with these people who share the similar circumstances I think it's also a way of trying to find out what you have in common with people who don't have these circumstances I mean who come from different situations in life like you said it's also a part of learning about them but at some deeper level I think you also want to feel a connect with them I, I mean I'm talking about fiction here
0: Then in the end, I still felt like asking that friend, but what about Indian writers? Like, how do they fit into your reading biography in a way? And uh, she told me that, of course, Indian books and comics were there in school. There were, of course, stories about their national leaders, mythological stories and how Indian writers later became important.
1: The first Indian writers that I started reading, I think most kids would agree, one is Ruskin Bond who I'm sure you've heard of him, he lives in the foothills of the Himalayas and all that and uh, yeah he was pretty cool, he writes about like stories in hill towns, he's Anglo-Indian so there's a lot of the, he's lived through that period also and yeah so uh, Ruskin Bond is really cool, again a lot of hill stories so it was quite uh, easy for me to compare with my childhood and all that but i think the real transition uh, vis-a-vis literature started when i started reading rk narayan he is written on uh, you know i mean south indian life specifically and he has so he created this fictional town called malgudi and so most of his novels are based in malgudi with like different characters who overlap and so, I think the influence that Arkanarayan played in my life at that point and as an introduction to Indian literature in English, it cannot be understated. The storylines were familiar, the social situations, you know, norms, all of those were familiar with the kind of life that I was also reading, you know, writing about food. I mean, and going back to the original topic, of course, about landscapes, the weather, it's hot. People are roaming around shirtless, there are women in sarees and uh, the food is also like you know you have mangoes in the summer, people are eating curd with rice. I mean I think that really threw open a world for me in in terms of a lesson basically where it was like okay you know you can live the life that you're leading right now and still find stories to write and tell. And I think as a child, hearing that kind of thing is very important because you tend to somehow think that you don't have much in your life which is worthy of a story. So and definitely showed that to me. Something that we have to also keep in mind is that I read exclusively in English. I'm sure that a person who read other languages, like other Indian languages would have a vastly different story to tell. Like once I was talking about this, the same thing, you know, the disconnect that you feel with the books as a kid uh, to a friend of mine who, who's very well read in Malayalam. and So she was telling me that she never felt that with her reading and with her childhood because most of these books were written by people who lived in the same state and everything you know who had a similar kind of life so again it's also i think a deeply personal uh, experience that you study in a particular kind of school your parents also read only in a particular language and so the kind of books that you read also I don't know, are narrowed down i guess mm-hmm.